Um, well, ladies and gentlemen, sorry about the slight delay. The Minister has come um, from uh, a parliamentary meeting, which has held him up a little bit, uh, but he's now here, and we're very pleased. So I'd just like to uh, welcome you all to this latest event in the, European, the LSE European Institute um, uh, Future of Europe lecture series, which we, um, as many of you know, will, will know by now we um, host jointly and with the sponsorship of um, FT Business, which is the specialist publishing arm of the Financial Times. This is now the second year of the series, and uh, it's now well established as one of the EU's leading platforms, I think we can say without exaggeration, for debating the shape and well-being of our continent in all its shapes and guises. And I commend to you a very lively program of activity this term, uh, which you'll be able to find out more about um, on the LSE website or in the LSE uh, events leaflet. But this term's activity starts right now, here, this evening, uh, and we're delighted that Jim Murphy, MP, the UK's Minister for Europe, has accepted our invitation to come and speak at the school. Uh, Jim Murphy is the member for East Renfrewshire. Uh, he's been Minister for Europe since last June, having previously been a Foreign Office Whip, uh, Parliamentary Secretary of the Cabinet Office, and most recently Minister for Employment and Welfare Reform at the Department of Work and Pensions. Now, as ministerial careers go, uh, Jim Murphy's entry into the twilight world of EU politics has been something of a baptism by fire, launched straight into an intergovernmental conference with Britain's red lines to defend last October and the UK's idiosyncratic press breathing down the government's neck. It was ever thus, of course, for British ministers. I'm sure that is not, much, uh, not too much comfort uh, for, uh, for the minister. But by general consent, and I, I promise that I'm not just being polite about uh, our guest um, this evening, Jim Murphy has shown a sureness of touch uh, and a ready grasp of his many complex briefs. And I know that his officials, some of whom are old friends of mine, from FCO days, speak very highly of him indeed, and I'm not revealing any secrets when I say that is not always how officials talk about their ministers behind their back. Um, I have to say we weren't altogether surprised uh, when we were told the topic uh, that the minister wished to address. Uh, it is, after all, Britain's historic mission uh, to raise the sights in the EU, to stop the institutional navel-gazing, uh, and look to the world beyond the EU's current borders. And who is to say that the EU is any worse for it? Now with 27 members, uh, more free trading within, a little more uh, free trading um, without, uh, less obsessed perhaps bringing in new laws um, for the sake of it. Well, maybe I, I spent a, a little bit too long in the Foreign Office. Uh, but um, we, are, uh, we at LSE are actually delighted uh, to have a distraction from our own exhaustive studies of the EU's internal workings and structure. And I dare say the Minister is too as he prepares to take forward the lengthy process of parliamentary ratification of the Lisbon Treaty, which I believe is likely to start very soon, and which may, which may well run until the early summer, and which will no doubt have many entertaining moments. But that is not for now, um, because there is the world outside of problems which know no borders, terrorism, weapons proliferation, crime, uh, huge immigration flows. And with the European Commission, which uh, these days talks of nothing, um, other than outputs and deliverables which make a difference to real people with more Atlanticist leaders perhaps in Paris and Berlin uh, with a French Europe minister reported only yesterday saying that EU enlargement should be at the heart of EU policy uh, maybe the time has never been better for a new British push I'm sure the minister will tell us why it's needed and we very much look forward to hearing him on the EU at 27 
taking a global role. And he has kindly agreed to take a few questions afterwards. He will need to be away for a parliamentary vote at 7.30. Minister, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. I'm delighted to see so many of you here, and I'm delighted that so many of my friends from the, the world of um, European Union ambassadors are also sitting here in the, the first, second, and I don't know if in some of the cheap seats as well, I don't know, but certainly in the first and, first and second row. And thank you for that you know, overwhelmingly positive introduction. You, know, you get all sorts of introductions when you come to these events, and not all of them in any way as complimentary as that one. And one of the things you missed off, one of the few things you missed off my CV is that I've joked about in the past, as well as being the Minister for Europe, I'm also, and the Ambassadors may already be aware of this, I'm also the captain of the House of Commons football team. Um, someone groaning. Um, and as captain of the House, I've recently been relinquished of that responsibility, but it's partly because in the 16 games that I was captain, um, we managed to draw none of the 16 games, um, lose all 16. Uh, <laughs> and when you think, many of you have studied, so I know many of you are from overseas, um, but you'll have studied all the different intricacies of the, U the unwritten UK constitution. When you consider that one of the games that we lost was to the House of Lords, it makes you realise just how bad the House of Commons football team um, really is. And that's the main reason why when we vote on the House of Lords, it's the main reason why I vote to abolish the House of Lords. <laughs> uh, just kind of to free up an embarrassing fixture in our, our football calendar, nothing to do with it. Well, that has something to do with the nature of our democracy, but nevertheless, it's also to avoid that annual embarrassment. But really, why I'm here this evening, um, as you heard, talk about how I see the world, how I see the European Union as a global force, as we celebrate the fact that the European Union has grown to 27 member states, and in time, should be greater than 27, was in time a modern and democratic Turkey being welcomed into membership of the European Union, Croatia being a member of the European Union, the continuing evolution um, post the um, collapse of um, Yugoslavia, with all of the component parts being the former republic being members of the European Union, and just continuing that expansion of the European Union um, over time. And as we reflect on a, the start of a new year, we often use it as an opportunity to look back and also to come up with our own personal um, New Year's resolutions. Perhaps mine should be to try to be a little more on time um, in future events. But the European Union itself, I think, could benefit from a period of um, generating its own resolution. Um, a resolution that says that once and for all the era of introspection is over. That period, an all too long and an occasion counterproductive period of self-obsession about the European Union structures has now come to an end. And it should look much more outwards beyond the borders of the European Union rather than its own architecture which I believe is now settled. It should also resolve to challenge poverty and environmental degradation, climate change, um, not only within our own borders, but far beyond. 
because we all know that, for example, on the environment, climate change doesn't respect national boundaries. Never has, never will. So it's an empty intellectual argument to say that we can simply build some patriotic front behind ever-increasing national borders as a way of protecting us against climate change. And Europe should, of course, as well, resolve to champion free trade, both within its borders and outside of its borders. And these things aren't just achievable in the long term. I believe in this year, of all years, as we resolve that the debate about our own structures has now concluded, I believe in this year of all years we will make substantial progress. The European Union, of course, this year will be um, led in the presidency by Slovenia um, and France, which gives us a, does give us a phenomenal opportunity to see real progress. And here in the United Kingdom, I think it gives an opportunity as well for those of us who are pro-European, for those of us who wish to see the European Union prosper, gives us an opportunity to resolve that we should perhaps see Europe in a different light. Europe is an opportunity to do good in the world, not a foreign policy threat that's to be managed, but a, a, a passionate belief in the power of the European Union to improve the lives of its citizens and the lives of the citizens and beyond our borders. So we should have a conversation which is mature, which is informed. And here in the UK, the frustration in the, in the past, I think, is, has often been that the debate about Europe's future in the United Kingdom has often really been a debate about Britain's past. And that's not the prism through which we can see and um, carry out an informed conversation about the future role and shape of the European Union. It would also help if those who, those who are the detractors of the European Union, and perhaps specifically on the Lisbon Treaty, um, desist from bestowing the European Union and the Lisbon Treaty with apparently satanical powers. I've read in recent weeks and months that the Lisbon Treaty is a coup d'etat, that the Lisbon Treaty is similar to the threat from Nazi Germany. Someone is laughing. It, I, it, it, it does... It's, it, it appears almost hysterical, and it is hysterical in terms of a, the terms of a political debate. But that has been the term of the political debate about the Lisbon Treaty, where serious journalists and serious newspapers write these sorts of things. And recently, I this week, I received a letter to say that it was all part of a papist conspiracy. Now, as a Catholic, perhaps I should be for that. But it's none of these things. We, those of us who are pro-European, do have to look and try to convince others about what Europe has achieved over the past 50 years. How it has helped to make our continent a more peaceful place, a more prosperous and a better place, but also what it has failed to live up to all of our ambitions and expectations and act decisively enough. When we look at the recent history of the European Union, look back to even just the 1990s, when there was a great debate about how to get aid to Bosnia as it faced the chilling oncoming Balkan winter. And by the time European leaders had come to a resolution and taken decisive action, the snow had melted in Sarajevo. Now that's not the type of indecision 
an institution that we so care so passionately about and believe is a great opportunity for good across the globe um, should behave. So we can no longer act at the pace of the slowest when we have 27 members um, of the European Union um, w within our ranks. And I believe passionately, unlike many in Parliament, that the UK's position must remain at the heart of Europe. And we should say so loudly and clearly, not just in words, but also in our deeds. It means not adopting policies, which would inevitably mean, if we put them into practice, detaching Britain from mainstream of Europe. And Europe will, as we've already heard, figure large in the months ahead in the UK Parliament as we discuss the Lisbon Treaty. And it's perhaps inevitable that some people in the UK feel more European than others. There's nothing odd in that. It's true across the whole of Europe, and it makes for a continuing interesting dialogue. But like many people in the United Kingdom, I recognise there is a strong philosophical case for European cooperation as a means to permanent peace and rising prosperity. Ultimately, it doesn't matter if you believe in this intellectual case for Europe. If you're a doubter about the practical case, then just look at the different experiences over recent years and the challenges that lie ahead of us. Ask yourself, how can we achieve our aims, whether it's in climate security, finding a settlement for Kosovo, or simply trading goods and services across, the, across Europe? Think about, just for a moment, what the world would be like without a European Union. Really think about it. How would we achieve our ambitions without the EU? How would Britain achieve our ambitions without that nature of cooperation? Britain would be poorer, we would be less influential in the world and we would be less safe. We'd be poorer because as a trading nation we rely heavily on our membership of the European Union. Single market of 480 million consumers, the largest, most developed rules-based market in human history. And we have the honour and opportunity to be members of it. Over 3 million British jobs rely on our relationship with the European Union. In every region of the United Kingdom, tens of thousands of people go to work today because of our membership of the European Union. We'd be less influential in the world, as I've alluded to. It's a medium-sized country with a successful economy and professional military forces, of which I'm rightly proud. We would, of course, still have an influence if we weren't members of the European Union. But we would be throwing away that added clout we get from coordinating with our European partners on international policy priorities such as debt relief in impoverished parts of Africa, Kosovo or in Burma. We would also be less safe as we reflect on the EU's work on fighting international crime and terrorism. It does make Britain a safer place. Safety standards in our workplaces, on our roads, on imported goods have been raised thanks to the European Union. And working with the EU on climate change offers the best chance of safeguarding our long-term safety. As one of my predecessors, I think, rightly put it, without our membership of the European Union, the United Kingdom would be like Norway with nukes. And I don't wish to in any way, of course, be unkind to our very good friends in Norway, but that's not the path that the United Kingdom should choose. There are many anti-Europeans 
in Parliament, of course, including predominantly in our main opposition party, who think that it's a good this is a good op option for the United Kingdom to remove ourselves from the European Union. But Britain's national interest, our national interest, is secured through Europe. Our prosperity, our ability to influence internationally, and our security. Walking away from the EU would be a surrender of our national interest. Even when we look more locally, at the London School of Economics, 18% of students here come from other EU countries. Students rightly have almost total freedom to go and study anywhere in the European Union. Opportunities to live in a new culture and learn a new language when you graduate, of course, can work in almost in any European country. Wherever in Europe you did your Christmas shopping this year, and for the second year in a row, Santa in our household came via eBay. But we bought our goods from all over Europe eBay goods from all over Europe, guaranteed by European safety standards. Regardless of which part of Europe your food is from, safety and quality guaranteed by European standards. And when you go on holidays, you can thank the EU for cheaper flights and for cheaper mobile phone charges as well. So it isn't just the great big political challenges of the day. The nature of international diplomacy and the threats to our world and national security it is about quality of life that the European Union continues um, to deliver for our citizens. And I'm acutely conscious that it's important for us not just to reflect on the past, about the, pr the prosperity and security and peace that has been brought in previous years and in previous decades, because we continually need to find ways to retain contemporary consent for Europe. It's the nature of politics and public life. People are more interested in what you're going to do next than what you've already done. That's a lesson for every political party all over the world. It's part of the dynamic of the US election that we're currently, so many of us are currently so fascinated by. What are you going to do next, Philip? And that's what fuels contemporary consent for any project, including Europe. And that's where we are now in terms of the Lisbon Treaty. It hasn't perhaps been surprising that over the past few months we have debated um, the architecture and the structures of Europe, because the EU's architect architecture was designed initially for six member states. We all know that. It was then adjusted for nine, then 12, then 15. We now have 27 member states, and with more to come. And that shift in membership did need radical, ch did, did need and does need further radical change in our housekeeping and our functioning. So while debates about majority voting and qualified majority voting and double majority voting fascinate a few hundred people across the whole of Europe, they're important but boring debates that often cut out the citizens. And the Lisbon Treaty is one of a long line of European treaties, as I'm sure you're all aware. And the EU has, it's fair to say, built up gradually built up its strength and purpose over the past five decades. In post-war Europe, as you know, Monet and Schumann mulled over what was needed to stop Europe's almost endless warfare. Their recipe, I think, reasonably, was to bind France and Germany together in the Coal and Steel Agreement, arguing that if these two countries pulled together the raw resources needed for warfare, 
it would be materially impossible to fight each other again. And today's European Union has largely, not entirely, but has largely kept this peace. In keeping that peace, however, we do have to reflect where there have been um, failures and the challenges that do lie ahead. And to achieve that, I don't believe it's necessary to have further institutional reform beyond this Lisbon Treaty. My sense is that the period of structural building is coming to an end, that the dream of some, of which I'm not one, but the dream of some who believe in a federalist Europe, a federalist superstate, has ended. There never will be a federal Europe, not in our lifetimes. Even the lifetimes of the youngest person here this evening, it just will not happen in our lifetimes. So the zenith of this institution building took place throughout the 80s and 90s, as we know. And subsequent treaties have over that period have become less ambitious in their scope, not more ambitious. When we look at Maastricht, the Single European Act, um, Amsterdam and Nice treaties. And this Lisbon Treaty, parliaments across the European Union will have an opportunity to debate the finer points of the Lisbon Treaty, particularly here in the United Kingdom. Committees in the House of Commons and the House of Lords will scrutinise line by line every single detail of the bill to implement the treaty in the same way that they did on Maastricht, the Single European Act, and, and on other treaties. We have no intention of having a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty. We will take a similar approach in this treaty as previous governments took on their respective treaties. Uh, Mrs. Thatcher on the Single European Act, Mr. Major um, on Maastricht, and Mr. Blair on Amsterdam and Nice treaties. We've only ever had one national referendum in the United Kingdom, and we don't plan a second one. And that's why this detailed discussion and debate in the House of Commons and the House of Lords is so important to explore the myths about this treaty. So how does the treaty, just reflect on this for a moment or two, how does this treaty affect our lives and our institutions? The treaty reinforces a model of European cooperation, not a model of European federation. It gives national parliaments for the first time a direct say in EU legislation. It strengthens national leaders' control of EU strategic direction by putting the President of the European Council on a full-time basis. Now, those of you who have studied this surely we've come to the same conclusion that European leaders have now come to, is that it's, it's ludicrous to have a rotating presidency of such an organisation every 26 weeks. I'm sure there's not an organisation that you're involved in as a student or as an academic that rotates its leadership every 26 weeks. So how this organisation with such an enormous power, potential power for good the largest market ever created, an organization upon which we have great aspiration on climate change and so many other challenges, do we rotate its leadership every 26 weeks? That must come to an end. In my parliamentary constituency just outside of Glasgow, there isn't a bowling club or a bingo club that would run its organization with a rotating leadership every 26 weeks, and the European Union should cease to do so in the Lisbon Treaty will bring that into effect. But it also reflects, the Lisbon Treaty also reflects and reminds us of our shared heritage of European values. 
liberal values of tolerance, respect, free movement, solidarity and social justice. These don't threaten the United Kingdom as some people would have us believe because these are our values. These are the values that we believe in. These are the values many of us were born with. These are values that reflect our modern history. We help forge these values. We help influence Europe to share these values with others. So the UK represents, I would argue, possibly one of the, mo the most progressive and value-based European states out of all 27. And that's why it's important that the Lisbon Treaty reflects those values. We have this shared European heritage of free thought, free exchange and free trade. And the Lisbon Treaty helped to build on that. And it ensures that Europe has the privileged position that it currently enjoys. And we must not abandon them now for some antiquated and backward-looking protectionism in the name of national sovereignty. And of course, liberal thought and liberal trade go hand in hand. The Lisbon Treaty also ensures that Europe can be a global player, a global Europe. Throughout its long history, Europe has just not considered its own development. It has influenced the world's development. And as I said earlier, how would the world be without the European Union? The world without the European Union of power blocks, which are previously empires and commonwealths, I think it would have been, it would undermine in a remarkable, a remarkable way our ability to achieve our national interest, our strategic priorities in a fairer and better world if there was not a Europe determined to play that increasingly global role that is envisaged by the Lisbon Treaty. Look at Central and Eastern Europe. The end of the Cold War created conditions for a new outbreak of European nationalism. Ancient states found themselves newly free and ancient nations saw an opportunity to create new states. Throughout most of Europe, this process of nationalism, traditionally accompanied by dangerous risks, was managed without bloodshed and conflict, partly because of the enlightened policy of EU enlargement. The exception, of course, was in former Yugoslavia. Without a doubt, the most powerful tool to achieve rich and stable states in the Western Balkans is the prospect of EU membership itself. Alongside this, we need a highly skilled European contribution, both in terms of administrators and peacekeepers in Kosovo. Our national pride lies in our tolerance, our respect and humanity to others, not a dark, brutal nationalism of the 19th century of conquest and of fear. And the Lisbon Treaty helps Europe to deliver on that, that sense of a global Europe. And if we look at the challenges, finally, if we look at the challenges that lie ahead for the European Union and 2008 on the international stage as part of a global Europe, the EU must assist in the economic and political development that I've spoken about already on Kosovo. The EU must work with the UN and the US on Iran. And as we all know, Iran has a choice. If it changes its approach and stops its illegal nuclear program, the EU will help the country to develop its great potential to play a powerful role in the Middle East. But if it continues to front, confront the international community, the EU will tighten sanctions quite rightly, whether or not the Security Council reaches agreement on measures. Further east, we stand ready to help the Burmese people 
in their struggle towards democracy, prosperity and stability. On the, in the Islamic world, and Pakistan and is in transition and the EU with partners such as the UN must help to ensure the re-emergence of democracy, justice and the rule of law. And the EU is the world's largest development donor. In 2008, the EU will spend almost 370 million euro in humanitarian aid across the world. And we will give serious thought on how we can accelerate progress in achieving Millennium Development Goals against poverty by 2015. On climate change, Europe must increase funding to help poorer countries and regions reach high levels of development with low levels of carbon. It must also play a leading role in negotiating a new international agreement on climate security. And we've rightly set ambitious targets for redu reducing emissions. All of these challenges that we face in the year ahead. Britain can't achieve them by ourselves. No European nation can achieve this by itself. No European people, no European institution can achieve all or indeed any of these grand ambitions in 2008 by themselves. In 2008, perhaps more than in many years, the European Union has the opportunity to make a real and lasting difference on our planet and on our security and on our prosperity. Not just because of the perhaps half a dozen strategic challenges that we face, but because we have now finally come to the end of a period of introspection, surely, around which our political class has been obsessed for far too long. We're in a continent where there are 92 million people who are economically inactive 92 million people economically inactive. We continue to debate double majority voting. 92 million people. It's the combined population of the whole of Scandinavia and the 10 new member states of the European, people, European Union put together. And when people talk about liberal economics and free trade, for me, that's the prize. It's supporting an ever-increasing number of those 92 million people to have the opportunity to get into work that so many of us have rightly taken for granted for so long. And that's the way we drive out poverty in so many European families and so many European regions. So the opportunity for their skills to become a national asset, for a person to get a, an opportunity to get a job, to get a career, and so that that's generational. In too many parts of, of the European Union, too many families inherit nothing much more from their fathers or grand, grandmothers than a poverty of ambition. And that's all too true amongst those families, including amongst that number of 92 million. That's a great challenge for Europe that we rarely speak of. It's a great challenge that reflects our European values, about everyone having an opportunity in life to make most of their talents. And again, that cannot be achieved by one country acting alone. It is about pooling our resources, pooling our sovereignty, and working for the benefit of all of our citizens. Thank you very much. Minister, thank you for a, a, a very... Uh, 
uh, a punchy and passionate um, talk. Um, we've got, um, uh, we only have uh, about 10 to 15 minutes, so I will do the usual thing about asking for uh, almost monosyllabic questions, so punchy and short and terse as they be, uh, and follows from that answers. It won't stop me from just uh, uh, exercising Chairman's prerogative very, very quickly, uh, namely uh, just to ask uh, if Europe is to be an effective global player, given that two of its leading members, Britain and France, are the two countries with perhaps the most global reach and the most global sense of their interests. In the year of the French presidency, uh, in the second half of this year, indeed of a state visit of a very active French president, is there any hope for Europe to count as a global player if Britain and France don't work closely together? That's my bit. I'd ask you to keep your questions even shorter. Um, uh, if you could, uh, and just wait, obviously, for the mic to be brought round. Uh, the gentleman just there, let's try to jump out. Thank you very much for your speech, Mr. Minister. My name is Shahim Bayramov. I'm from Azerbaijan student at the UCL. I would like to know that how do you see the Turkish accession to the EU? And is Britain supporting the Turkish accession to EU? Thank you very much for your answer. You have seen what you want to cluster them? We'll take, we'll, 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 we'll take one more. Um, yes, gentlemen at the front, then I'll, I'll move backwards, I promise. Hello, and thank you as well. I just wanted to know concretely what are the foreign policy tools that the EU would hope to use um, again to help the people of Burma, and concretely how would the EU hope to use those tools? Okay, happy to take okay, yeah. three. I'll give you very short answers because there are many hands in the air. Not with anyone who has a hand up upstairs, but there's two. I will, um, I will go upstairs. On the specific questions about UK and France, the short answer is yes. The slightly longer answer is that President Sarkozy is showing a real determination and a great passion for working with the United Kingdom. Um, I think there's a, an opportunity perhaps not seen for some time for really remarkable close working um, between the UK and France. I was in France um, just recently. And there's a whole range of issues where we share a determination on climate change, on development in Africa, on preventing conflict and dealing with conflict in Africa. There's a remarkable willingness on both sides of the channel now to work together. And I think you'll see that over this year mm -hmm. in practical measures. On Turkey, we strongly, so as I alluded to, we strongly support, very strongly support, and will continue to strongly support Turkish membership of the European Union. Um, now, it's not the Turkey of today. It's a Turkey that has changed, is in the process of change and has to continue to change in terms of its democracy, its human rights, its market reforms, a whole series of, reform, a whole series of reforms. But look, the European Union cannot be a Christian club. We cannot say to a secular but predominantly Muslim population that we're not letting you in. I think the impact, apart from the principle all sorts of principles, the impact upon the dynamics of Turkish politics would be unthinkable. Turkey is a strategic ally of the United Kingdom, a member of NATO, and can play a, a, a fantastically important role in the future of the European Union. I think it would also be potentially, depending when it joined, the largest member of the European Union. Um, so perhaps then you'd be asking in future years, how can we work with Turkey? Run, how can we work with France, but perhaps, perhaps not. In terms of on Burma, um, predominantly 
it is about um, seeing con tying sanctions to specific conditions. And the European Union has made it clear that it has, it has ruled nothing out in terms of sanctions against Burma. I attended a meeting of all 27 Europe ministers where we discussed Burma and we made it very clear there's a series of interim sanctions against Burma but if the pro proper and lasting progress isn't made, we will return to further we will return to the prospect of further sanctions against Burma. Thank you. Let's go upstairs and see if there's anybody. Um, any question upstairs? Then somebody right at the back in a second in the red. Thank you for a um, very passionate speech. Um, my question is: as you mentioned, that UK is not going to hold a referendum on the new treaty. Um, but um, as you um, argue that there has been no referendum on the issue um, historically. Um, but my question is, um, that doesn't justify um, that UK is not holding a new referendum. Um, Mr. Blair promised one, and why we do not have one this time? Um, or does it just show a lack of confidence of your government? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Dominic Mitchell. Uh, Dominic Brett, head of public diplomacy at the European Commission, rep here in London. Uh, I was very interested in your firm conviction that you think we have actually reached the end point of, of uh, an institutional settlement of the, of the, the, the EU's architecture. Because some people would argue, of course, that the ideological pressures and certainly the functional pressures in a, in a single currency area for greater integration will remain. So do you not think that instead what we'll see um, is more variable geometry within the EU. Take, and take one more question. There's a very assiduous gentleman who's had his hand up more or less since the beginning, so he'll be duly rewarded. Gentleman over there. Thanks very much. Um, Russia is a European nation. Should Russia join the EU? And if not, why not? Okay. okay. Thank you. All very easy questions. <laughs> I'll try and give. I get, each of these questions are, are deserving of a speech. I won't give you that. I'll try and give you relatively. Try and give you brief answers so we can get another set of questions in for the next seven minutes. If you, that's it. On referendum, we promised a referendum on the old constitution. Nine countries of the European Union promised a referendum on the constitutional treaty. Only Ireland now plans to have a referendum out of the 27 member states of the European Union, because Ireland has to, it's bound by domestic law to have a referendum. So only one out of 27. And the reason being across Europe is, and as all 27 countries have declared, the constitutional approach has been abandoned. There will be no European constitution. All countries have agreed that. But specifically in the UK, we've moved further away from the old constitution than any other country in Europe. Because without going into all the detail, you wouldn't thank me for it, we've negotiated a specific deal in the UK, a combination, what we call, our, the easy way of describing it is our red lines, a series of protocols, um, opt-outs and opt-ins, and guarantees, that are co the combination of which is unique to the United Kingdom. So everyone's moved away from the Constitution, the UK has moved further than any other country, only Ireland is having a referendum. So there's a great sense, there's a great sense that the UK is in the mainstream. 
this is where every other government except Ireland is. And I, uh, that my family are from Ireland. I'm not going to criticise the Irish. Far, 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 far from it. Um, that's just the nature of their con domestic constitutional settlement. In terms of how am I confident that this is the end of institution building? Any major, ins any major institutional reform requires unanimity. The United Kingdom will not contribute to, the, to that unanimity. So there won't be major institutional reform. Um, we wouldn't agree to further treaties and, I and IG IGC process. These are the tools for the job for the foreseeable future. I think there's an, I don't think, there might not be unanimity on that yet, but there's a, de well, that's, there's a I think we'll come close to that actually. There's a declaration that this is it for the foreseeable future. Now, what we have to do is bed the Lisbon Treaty. I think the Lisbon Treaty doesn't finally come into effect. All aspects of it to 2017, the final aspects of it. So we haven't even ratified it. I'm not interested in a conversation about another treaty. Gordon Brown has said there'll be none in this parliament or the next, but we have no intention of contributing towards another consensus and further unanimity on further treaty change. Um, on Russia, the rules of the game are you've got to apply. <laughs> I haven't, uh, President Putin is one of his last acts as presidency. I don't think he's planning to stick a stamp on an envelope or send an email of application. So the question doesn't come up. But as the United Kingdom, as far as the United Kingdom is concerned, our view, our interaction with Russia, we are much stronger by working with our 26 allies in Europe. 27 voices with all sorts of different accents, uh, all sorts of different languages, speaking with one voice when it comes to Russia, be on energy <coughs> or security, can be much more powerful than the UK, France, Slovenia, or Italy speaking on their own. So the, I hope that answers your question. Uh, I think we've got time for, for, for one more round, um, and I'm going to go right over um, gentleman the gentleman on the far side. Thank you very much, Nicholas McLean. I wonder if you and Douglas Alexander could bring your entrance to bear on, on the Commission not to tidy up the uh, approach to, to, to development assistance, as I heard in Russell just before Christmas, uh, to make it much, more, uh, much easier to administer by a very small number of large projects rather than the kind of practical grassroots approach working with NGOs, which is far more effective. Okay, we'll take, we'll take two more. Um, are there any, um, I haven't realized I haven't called a single lady speaker, which is quite unlike me, um, but I'm not sure if I, I actually see uh, any hands being put up. Um, um, yes, Clara O'Donnell. Oh, sorry. No, no, it's fine, no, no, well, it just saves you, you can answer invidious, having to make invidious choices. <laughs> um, yes, Clara O'Donnell. Um, Clara O'Donnell, Centre for European Reform. I was just wondering, on the areas of uh, potential good cooperation between France and the UK, you mentioned, what are your views on the proposals coming from France for strengthening European defence? Strengthening European defence is a question for those who didn't hear. Um, and uh, the gentleman who has also been very assiduous, who's there?
On the question about development, I'll look into the specific point you, you made, sir, but the, generally the Lisbon Treaty, the, the conversation about the Lisbon Treaty for a period of months because was about, and the opposition to the Lisbon Treaty was generally motivated by an argument about things that weren't actually in the Lisbon Treaty. Right? The problem was, through the summer, there was no final treaty, the thing hadn't been signed, and therefore all sorts of stories that I alluded to earlier were able to run and run. All sorts of scare stories. All sorts of made up things about. And remember we had a full day of assertion that because the Lisbon Treaty would force us to free all of our most dangerous killers and rapists. Serious people making ludicrous, ludicrous, embarrassing. In any other country it would be embarrassing. Fringe parties wouldn't make these allegations. But serious allegations made by reasonably serious people here in the United Kingdom. So we're now having a conversation about what is actually in the treaty, which is why things like development, m m most, if I think probably all of the big development organizations in the UK have said, we think this treaty is good. The children's charities, we think this treaty is good. A lot of the green organizations favor the treaty, the sporting organizations, a huge number of organizations saying we think this treaty um, is the right thing. So in development, the treaty will make important changes so that poverty, <coughs> it sounds common sense, but it hasn't been the approach up until now, is that aid policy must be about poverty reduction. Sounds a no-brainer, but it hasn't been the strategic objective of the European Union enough in the past, and it's clear in the Lisbon Treaty. On defence, we are uh, uh, friends in France, we're happy to work together. Uh, the, the exact um, nature of that we continue to discuss, but it's clear we cooperate um, in different sort of international theatres with our French colleagues. So our armed forces work together in all sorts of different ways, and we'll continue to do so. And there are opportunities to do that where it suits our national interest and France's national interest, and that would be the right thing to do. I think this was first discussed and agreed in principle by another Labour Prime Minister, um, Clement Attlee, in 1947 or 1948. So it's not a new conversation about a European um, defence um, cooperation, but we often treat it as though it is. On Kosovo, our view is the United Kingdom government is pretty straightforward. So we know it's, it's as is Tur our view on Turkey, membership of the European Union, I think you've got the sense that it's pretty straightforward that a reformed Turkey should join the European Union. On Kosovo, it's our, our view that every conceivable diplomatic channel is, has been or is about to be exhausted. There has not been the progress at the United Nations that any or all of us would have wished. So we're then faced with the question, what do we do? The United King Kingdom's government is that we would not allow an unreasonable veto at the United Nations by one country, Russia, to, by one country, 
I'm, I'm answer, just answering the question, sir. We wouldn't allow one unreasonable veto. Well, we wouldn't allow one unreasonable veto of the United Nations to prevent supervised independence for Kosovo. Now, the fact is that independence and recognition of an independent state, it's a different issue from war, of course, sir. Recognition of an independent state is for other independent states to make a declaration over. It's, it's for the United Kingdom to decide whether we recognize an independent Kosovo. It's for France to recognize whether they recognize an, ind an independent Kosovo. It's from other countries to make that decision. We'll make, we, our view is that because of the ethnic slaughter of so many people by previous Serbian leadership, uh, Kosovo's destiny is as an independent democratic country. You cannot leave it, Kosovo back under the authority of a Serbian government. This, and the current status quo just isn't tenable. Um, and therefore, ourselves along with the vast majority of European Union countries, have made it clear that if there is no solution at the United Nations, the European Union should act as one. All 27 countries should act together and recognize an independent democratic Kosovo, which is internationally supervised. Not some sort of surprising unilateral declaration that we'll wake up some Tuesday morning and read about in our newspapers, but something that is done with the European Union that we support, we help their economy, we provide the security that is necessary. In fact, I think there are 18 different battalions of armed forces in and around Kosovo to ensure that security. So I'm sorry that's a longer answer, but it is a relatively intricate question. But, but none of us want this situation, sir. You, you, Sorry, you have you have made your you have made your point. The minister has answered very fully and clearly. UN resolution 12 UN resolution 1244 is very clear about this, sir. And we'll act within international law within UN resolution 1244. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, minister. We must uh, unfortunately uh, drag thing uh, drag matters. Uh, to a close now, uh, as the Minister's schedule requires him to move on, I think he's given us full and clear um, answers. He's given us uh, an excellent talk, and we are most grateful to him. Thanks very much.